Last weekend, Spain held a general election and the results were surprising. Very surprising, actually, because it really contradicted the polls that we'd been given. It was a very disappointing result for the right overall. An expected right-wing victory did not materialise, as Guy Hedgeco, who reported on the election for the Irish Times, explains. There was no majority for the Conservative Popular Party, even if they teamed up with uh, the far right. They still fall slightly short. Spain's political class are still trying to figure out what went wrong for the right. But one man happy to take credit is the left-wing Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez. Yet another instance of Pedro Sánchez showing why he's known as a survivor. He does have this remarkable knack for seizing the initiative and coming out on top. The ultimate outcome of the election is still not clear. It's looking also for him very tricky to potentially form a coalition. We are uh, in a political deadlock. Whatever happens, it will have repercussions well beyond Spain. You would definitely get a different emphasis when it comes to things like migration, borders and the Green New Deal. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, Spain's snap election. Why did the right falter and what does it mean for Europe? Now, coming into this election, Spain was governed by a left-wing coalition. The largest component of that coalition was the Socialist Workers' Party. That's the big centre-left party. And its main opposition uh, was the centre-right Popular Party and the more far-right Vox Party. And then there's several other smaller parties, regional parties and that sort of thing. Now, the left-wing coalition has been in power since 2020. Then... At the end of May, Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, who heads up the Socialist Workers' Party, he called a snap election. Why did he do that? And what was the reaction to that? Well, he he called the snap election. I mean, it was within hours of the results coming through from the local elections at the end of May. And it was a classic Sánchez move. Um, he, He often, throughout his political career, has surprised people by making very sudden, dramatic gestures. His party performed quite poorly in the the May local elections, municipal and regional elections. And the left overall performed very poorly and lost a lot of ground to the right. So suddenly the the electoral map had changed quite dramatically uh, on a local level and suddenly the right was in control of all sorts of town halls, city halls, uh, regional governments, which had been under left-wing control. And we had been expecting there to be a, a general election in December And I think he was looking ahead to that and thinking, well, if we've got another four or five months before that general election, I'm behind in the polls. That could feel like a very long time. Um, It could really drag out and I could possibly fall even further behind in the polls if if we wait until then. So instead, he took this this quite dramatic decision to call the snap election. He kind of took the opposition by surprise. By many accounts, he took a lot of people within his own party, I think, by surprise as well by calling the snap election. But it gave him the initiative and it meant that the right couldn't spend days uh, celebrating their their victory in the local elections. They had to suddenly prepare for the general election. Um, And I think that gave Sanchez the initiative. It was seen as a big gamble at the time partly because it was going to be held, this general election, in the middle of summer, which had never never happened before. Um, and it was seen as a big gamble. But you look at the result and it looks like a gamble which has paid off. Is Sanchez popular personally? 
Um, it depends entirely on who you talk to. For half the country, I'd say he's become a kind of hate figure. And that is obviously the, the, the half of the, the country that votes for parties on the right. Tens of thousands of people gathered in central Madrid on Saturday to hold a rally in protest at the centre-left government of Pedro Sanchez. The demo was backed by the far-right party Vox. But the, the, right, the right-wing media, the right-wing parties have sort of made of him a kind of, almost a sort of mythological creature, a sort of bête noire. Um, and they've built this on the fact that he has relied very heavily um, throughout this last parliament on Catalan and Basque nationalist parties um, in order to keep his government together. Those, those parties are not, were not in his coalition, but he had some confidence and supply deals with them um, in order to get legislation through. So he needed them. And for many on the right, certainly political parties on the right, which are staunchly unionist, they saw this as a beyond the pale. They would say, how can you rely on parties that want to break up Spain? And beyond that, he was relying on, in particular, a, a Basque nationalist party, E.H. Bildu, um, which is kind of seen as um, what used to be the, polit- I suppose, what used to be the political wing of the Basque terrorist group ETA, although ETA no longer exists. And it's kind of, uh, you could compare it, I suppose, to Sinn Féin in that sense. And um, the issue of ETA and ETA's more than 800 victims um, throughout its campaign of violence um, remains a very live issue for the political right. And they've really used that. And they've said it was Pedro Sanchez is teaming up with his people who are sort of um, friends of, of terrorists, essentially. He's teaming up with separatists. Um, we've got to get rid of him. And when you sort of add to that his uh, government's agenda, which included a lot of issues that are sort of related to the culture war in terms of gender equality, rights for transgender people, and so on, um, that added to his sort of status uh, as, a, as this hate figure for the right. And having said all that, for people on the left, uh, a lot of them agree with, with uh, that agenda he's been driving through. And they believe that it's, it's perfectly OK to rely on those separatist parties in order uh, to ensure that that social agenda gets through Parliament. Can we talk a bit about the campaign itself? Now, here in Ireland, one thing we know about Spain at the moment specifically is that like other parts of Europe, it's been suffering a prolonged heat wave over the past month. Uh, The heat wave, experts say, is linked to climate change. Was climate change and the climate emergency an issue in this election or did other issues dominate? Well, it, it did come up. Um, it, it didn't dominate, but it was an issue that was talked about. And obviously, Spain seems to have been really hard hit by climate change. If you just look at how temperatures, how high temperatures are, the, the number of heat waves we seem to be having every summer, the droughts that you're seeing around the country, for example, in Catalonia and down in Andalusia. And that's causing hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland to dry up. All of the sweet is probably lost. The tap water is dangerous to consume and it's forced residents to get their drinking water delivered by truck. There's a pretty broad consensus in Spain that that's all due to climate change. But there is the far right Vox party, which takes the view that, that you can't prove that, that climate change is man-made. Um, they take a kind of classic sort of hard right view on that. So they're the, the only party that's been really openly questioning the consensus on climate change. But, I mean, 
There are other issues that you would expect to figure in the campaign. For example, the economy. Spain's economy has been performing pretty well on the face of it. It's been growing quite fast, not as fast as Ireland's, but it's been growing a lot faster than France, Germany, the UK, um, Italy, other countries around Europe. Inflation is now down below 2%. And yet Pedro Sanchez really struggled to make the most of that. Um, The opposition were talking about how, despite all that, Prices are still are still too high for many people because of that prolonged period uh, when inflation was high. And so for ordinary people, their spending power has dropped a lot. Um, and instead of those issues, what really dominated, I think, was that issue of Pedro Sanchez's parliamentary alliances with Basque and nationalist parties, um, issues related to the culture war, um, the, the right um, attacking Pedro Sanchez over... Um, so feminist issues, saying that he was taking feminism too far. Um, it was a kind of radical feminism. And by contrast, the left was hitting back at the right by saying, if the conservative popular party gets into power, it will do so with the far right. And it was the left was warning voters against voting for any party on the right, because they were saying, if you vote for the right, you're opening the door to the far right. Um, and that will create all sorts of um, erosions of of basic rights for whether it's for women or for the lgbtq community and other minorities so that was really where the battleground was uh, throughout the campaign about the the alliances and potential alliances that the two sides were forming Yeah, I mean, the battleground, it does seem very polarised, right and left. And the right, we know, is led by the Popular Party's leader, Alberto Núñez Feijo. How did Feijo try to convince voters to vote for him and his party? Well, his campaign in many ways was very negative. I mean, he wasn't really, you know, presenting a barrage of proposals about how to improve Spaniards' lives. A lot of it was simply, and, you know, he said this expressly, he said, I want to roll back Sanchismo. And Sanchismo <laughs> is, you know, Sanchezism, if you want to translate mm. it. A la nación, cinco meses de Sanchismo. It's una excelente noticia. The, I want to roll back the idea of Sanchez. And, and that was part of this sort of um, persona or this, this concept that the right created around Sanchez, that he represented something that, that went against traditional Spanish values. Um, and so he was saying he wanted to get rid of that. He wanted to go back to uh, ensuring the unity of Spain, ensuring that um, separatist parties didn't have an influence in mainstream Spanish politics, it rolling back certain laws as well. So um, Núñez Feijó was talking about if he got into power, he would roll back uh, a transgender law that made it easier, that Sanchez had introduced, that made it easier for um, people to... Um, to register a change of gender on the civil register, for example. He wanted to roll back a law related to historical memory that Sanchez had introduced, which tried to tackle the, the legacy and the, um, and the consequences of the, the Franco dictatorship. And that's something of a taboo for the right. So he said he wanted to roll that back. And so that was kind of what Núñez Feijó was, was fighting the election on, the, the supposed unpopularity of Sanchez. But I should add that Núñez Feijó had one or two skeletons in the closet of his own. Um, the, towards the end of the, the campaign, the left started attacking him um, over an issue which had emerged many years before, about 10 years before, photographs had emerged of Núñez Feijó on holiday uh, in Galicia with a notorious drug trafficker, a man called Marcial Dorado. 
Um, and this came up again during the election campaign because there was a feeling that he had never fully explained this relationship that he had had with this uh, this drug trafficker. And that was something which uh, seemed to cause a few problems for Núñez Feijóo towards the end of the campaign in particular, with many people saying, well, you know, it looks like you could well be prime minister in a few weeks and you haven't really explained this relationship you once had with a notorious criminal. And how did he explain not explaining it, if you know what I mean? Well, uh, on one occasion he said, well, back in the 1990s when I knew this man, uh, we didn't have Google, so I couldn't sort of Google him and find out who he was. I mean, that really didn't seem to convince many people. Um, I mean, it's interesting because one of the, the candidates in this election, um, Yolanda Diaz, the, the Labour minister who was heading up the Sumar um, platform, uh, electoral platform, which is a sort of um, a big umbrella covering about 15 left-wing groups to the left of Pedro Sanchez. She is Galician. And she said when she was a student back in the 1990s, she knew who Mar- Marcial Dorado was. She knew the kind of reputation he had. And she was just a student. She said, how could it be that you were already, um, you know, you already had were holding some public office at this time um, and you were going on holiday with this guy and you're claiming you didn't know who he was? Then right at the end of the, the campaign, uh, Núñez Feijó said, well, I did know he was a smuggler, that he smuggled certain goods, but I didn't know that he was involved in drugs. So he really got himself in a bit of a mess over that, and it didn't help him uh, when it came to election day, I think. Now, general elections love polls. What did the polling say was going to happen? Well, the polls said that uh, Núñez Feijó was heading uh, for a, a clear victory. Um, and it And the only sort of unknown there was whether or not he would clinch uh, a, a majority with the help of the far-right Vox party. But a lot of polls were showing that he was going to get that majority, 176 seats in the, in the chamber. And the, the polls are pretty unanimous about that. I should point out there was one poll which was not showing that, and, uh, and that poll was showing actually Pedro Sanchez might perform better and the left might perform better than, than the other polls were suggesting. But it was kind of, you know, ruled out and people were saying, well, you can't take it very seriously. In the end, that poll was was fairly accurate when it came to the final result in, in the sense of showing that actually the left, you know, does have a better chance of forming a government than the right. Coming up, Pedro Sanchez may be the great survivor, but can he form the next government? Or is Spain heading for political deadlock? I'll continue my conversation with Guy Hedgeco after this short break. Guy, in part one, we heard about the run-up to this election. It took place at the weekend and the results began to emerge on Sunday. Can you break down the results for us? Well, we have um, the two main parties, um, the the Conservative uh, PP, um, which won the election. Then you have, quite close behind it, the, the, the Socialist Party of Pedro Sanchez, the Prime Minister, um, and then there are two other main parties. Uh, one is the far-right Vox Party, which is sort of the natural ally of the, the Conservative PP, uh, which came in uh, third but lost a lot of ground there. Um, and then right behind it, uh, just two seats behind, was the, the Sumar Alliance or, or Sumar Platform, um, which is this... Um, as its name suggests, a kind of gathering. Uh, sumar means to add or to gather in Spanish. Um, a, 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 a gathering of 15 separate parties on the left, to the left of the socialists, um, including a party called Podemos, um, which 
was in the in the coalition with Pedro Sanchez uh, until now. Um, and so that's a new uh, a, a new electoral ticket. It's led by Yolanda Diaz, the Labour minister. Those are the main parties. And then beyond that, you have a, an array of smaller nationalist Catalan, Basque, uh, nationalist parties from around from those regions, but also other smaller parties from across the country. So, if before polling day there was a feeling that there was a move to the right, why did Vox do so much worse than expected? That, that seems to be a bit of a mystery, and I think that many people feel that that the like a likely explanation for that is that many voters were going out and felt that voting for the Conservative. Uh, popular party uh, was the useful vote. So they went for the Conservatives, their vote stayed on the right, but it went to the Conservatives instead of the far right, because they were confident perhaps that those two parties were going to govern together. And the the Conservatives looked like they were going to win. And so, you know, people like to vote for a winner. Um, that was a factor. The leader of the, uh, the Vox party himself, Santiago Abascal, he seemed to blame the way that the, the Conservatives had led their campaign. He said that the right overall could have performed better if the Conservatives hadn't been so sort of triumphalist uh, during the, le- the election campaign. I think at one point he said, after the election, he said, you, you sold the bear's skin before you had even hunted the bear. <laughs> and that was his sort of rather um, colloquial way of, of explaining that and saying that they'd, they'd been a little bit too optimistic and hadn't managed expectations and therefore that might have affected turnout a little bit. And you have to bear in mind, again, this was um, an election held in the middle of summer for the first time ever in Spain. In a heat temperatures, wave. In a heat wave. Temperatures in, in Madrid were in the mid-30s. Down in the south of the country, they were closer to 40 Celsius in some areas. So, you know, for elderly people or for, for anyone, really, that's not an incentive to go out and vote. Um, but turnout was reasonable. It was around 70% or so. That seems high. That's a reasonable turnout. Um, but if you take into account how polarised the country is and um, how fiercely fought the election may be, you wonder, well, if the election had been held in the middle of January, uh, the turnout might have been even higher. Um, so th- that's... That turnout, which was reasonable, but perhaps could have been higher, perhaps that affected Vox, who has you know, quite a lot of older voters there, uh, or a lot of wealthier voters as well, who perhaps were on holiday and simply didn't vote and didn't uh, cast their vote in the, in the postal ballot. Um, that might have been an explanation. Um, it, I think they're still trying to work out why they performed so poorly and why they lost, uh, they lost nearly 20 seats. Guy, is it fair to say then that the negativity and the focus on culturally divisive issues to do with rights and identity was a mistake in terms of strategy for the right? The jury's still out on whether that was uh, useful or not for the right, given the result, um, because they did talk about it a lot. And they, they have done you know, for months and, and for, the, well, for the last four years, um, the sort of feminist agenda of Pedro Sanchez's government, particularly his junior coalition partners uh, of uh, Podemos to his left, they've been so forthright in in pushing this agenda, you know, probably more so than most other countries around Europe. And so it has been, it's been a, sort of a battlefield, you know, gender equality has become a battlefield and you've got the far right uh, pushing back against that in, in many ways, not least of all, just the language that they use, you know, refusing to accept the use of the phrase 
um, you know, gender violence or, or what they call, you know, sort of sexist violence in Spain, but saying, you know, you shouldn't call it that. You should call it um, intrafamily violence is a phrase they use. And in some cases, they have started to persuade the conservatives to, to use that kind of uh, language as well. And if you look at the results, in a way, you, you could argue that being uh, taking part in that battle, in a way, it paid off for the left. I mean, you could argue that it's a divisive issue, it just feeds into you know the rest of the, the divisions in Spain. But it seems to have paid off uh, for the left. And if, if nothing else, I think a lot of left-wing voters were mobilised by the idea of a right-wing government, which would be perhaps clamping down on certain rights on uh, on um, organizations set up for gender equality um, and other social issues. So in that sense, perhaps it it, it mobilized the left, perhaps, um, in a way which helped uh, Pedro Sanchez in the end. So does Pedro Sanchez's decision to call that snap election now look like a stroke of political genius? I think it's it's yet another instance of Pedro Sanchez showing why he's known as a survivor. Um and he does have this remarkable knack um, for seizing the initiative, for taking people off guard um, and coming out on top. I mean, he, you could say he didn't come out fully on top in this election. He didn't win the election, but he has been celebrating it as if he won it. And you can see why he has a, a shot at forming a new government. He's constantly done this throughout his, his career. Um, he lost the leadership of his own Socialist Party back in 2016 because he didn't want to help the right um, unblock a political impasse um, and didn't want to allow the right to form a new government. So his own party got rid of him. He then came back a few months later and won the, uh, the primary for his own party. He surprised everyone. He won the, the, the leadership of the party again. He surprised everyone in 2018 by becoming prime minister, not through an election, but through a, a parliamentary manoeuvre, a no-confidence motion that very few people expected him to win. Um, he defeated Mariana Rajoy and became prime minister. Um, and then he's done it again here. He called the surprise election and nearly won it. He just keeps doing it. And what he says is he likes to rise to a challenge. And I think after this election, you, you can't deny that. So Spain has had a coalition government. It's now going to have a coalition government again because, as you said, there was no clear winner in this general election. So there's going to be bargaining and trading going on right now, presumably. What different paths forward are there? Well, I mean, if you, we're assuming that the, the conservative popular party won't be able to form a new government just because its uh, possible allies are so limited. It only has the far right that it can team up with, really, um, in Parliament. Um, it doesn't have any other substantial options. So assuming that Pedro Sanchez has the better chance of forming a government, he will team up with Sumar, um, the, the party to his left, um, but they still fall well short of, of a majority. They are going to need, in order to form a working majority, the support of all the the Basque and Catalan nationalist parties who were supporting them before for the last four years in very controversial circumstances. And they will also, and this is crucial, they will also, it seems, need the support of um, a hardline Catalan um, pro-independence party called Junts per Catalunya. And it's led by um, a man called Carlos Puigdemont, who was president of Catalonia 
um, a few years ago, but he fled the country and has been living um, in Belgium ever since because the Spanish authorities have wanted to extradite him to put him on trial for his role in Catalonia's failed attempt to break away from Spain in 2017. So now Pedro Sanchez is going to have to basically negotiate with this man, uh, Puigdemont, to try and get his support um, in an investiture, for an investiture vote in the coming months. Um, and those are going to be very tough negotiations because um, this hardline Catalan party is going to want, it seems, um, a referendum on independence at some point uh, for Catalonia. And Pedro Sanchez will not want to concede that. He won't, he won't want to hold a referendum on independence. He said in the past he won't hold one. Um, but there are going to be some very tough negotiations in order for him to get the support of that party. And it's not a given by any means. So if that doesn't happen, then we could be looking at a repeat election. So members of the new parliament will be sworn in on August the 17th. I suppose that's the next key date. Um, after which King Felipe, he'll summon the political leaders to his palace to discover whether a new government can be formed. Now, if Sanchez is mandated by the king to form a government, he has two months to do that. What if he can't? There'll be potentially two votes. One where he needs a full, uh, absolute majority in Congress. If he fails that, a second one would just be a simple majority, which would be easier because it would just require um, more yeses than noes in the vote. But if he fails that, then essentially we're looking at a repeat election if there are no options of forming a government. Now, this is not new for Spain. This happened in 2015 when there was uh, an inconclusive election. Uh, A few months later, Spain ended up holding another general election. It happened in 2019 Pedro Sánchez won the election but was unable to to agree on a new government with other parties on the left. A few months later, they held another election. Um, It's it's always been on the table, this, that a a repeat election is possible because Spain is so fragmented. Um, So if that happens, we could be looking at a repeat election, possibly at the end of the year, but I think it's probably more likely sometime in January. And obviously, no one wants that, um, least of all voters. Now, there's a particular reason, of course, why Europe is interested in this election in Spain, because Spain currently holds the EU presidency. And as our colleague uh, here in the Irish Times, Naomi O'Leary, reported recently, the next Spanish government may determine whether there is a rush to complete outstanding EU green policies on issues such as carbon emissions, pesticides, building regulations, or whether to go slow and hold these things up. Now, the popular party on the right has campaigned against further implementation of green regulations. But what if there is a prolonged period of uncertainty, as as you explained, as now seems possible, that if no government can be formed, what impact would that have on Spain's EU presidency and the role it might play there? Well, I I think, obviously, that is a a problem um, because... What we will have, let's say, if there is a political impasse for the coming months, we will have essentially a caretaker government. Pedro Sánchez will remain as sort of caretaker prime minister of Spain um, until the next elections. If there are, if there is a repeat election, for example, or if there just there are ongoing negotiations uh, in, a, in a bid to form a new government, he will remain in the role. He'll have ministers still in place. The government will still be in place, but it won't be a sort of 
the same as a normal working government in the sense of you it, it wouldn't have the same sort of ability to push through legislation through parliament i mean this is what we saw in 2015 and 2019 um, where there were several months of, of sort of hiatus when there was a government in place still but it really wasn't doing a great deal because it was so sort of caught up in the day-to-day sort of business of negotiating with other parties and um, and so on that it couldn't deal with with a lot of those issues. So that is a worry. It's a worry for the economy because there's uncertainty uh, uncertainty for businesses and for investors and so on. And I think it's a worry with these issues like you know the green transition, which. The current Spanish government, the, the left-wing coalition, is very committed to. It constantly talks about the need for the, the green transition. It's one of its priorities. And Pedro Sanchez and his government is, uh, it seems, extremely committed to the idea of, of the, the EU presidency as well. Um, the, the international stage is somewhere where Pedro Sanchez really is seen to perform well. Even his harshest critics uh, will concede him that. Um, but of course, when you have this sort of political limbo, it makes all that more difficult. It makes it more difficult for for this temporary government or caretaker government that's in place, and it makes it more difficult for Spain overall. And of course, it creates worries in Brussels as well. Guy, thanks very much. It's a pleasure, Bernice. That's it for today. I'm Bernice Harrison. For more coverage of the fallout from the Spanish general election from Guy Hedgeco, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>